This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 152, brought to you in association with Smart Pension, where I shall attempt to briefly cover coronaviruses, societal, governmental, economic, and liberty impacts on fintech and the world. The corona tsunami, or rather more precisely the reaction to the corona tsunami, is the biggest thing to have happened in the economy apart from war and will totally dominate the landscape for a long time to come. I thought about having a guest, not least of which it is more interesting for you, perhaps, and far less work for me, Long. Anyway, what guest would come on and say, it's a total bloody disaster, we're hanging on by our fingertips, which is the sad reality for all too many small companies as a whole. As you might imagine, I have a great inside track into what's really going on, as opposed to the propaganda and optimism that firms have to spread, so we will return to that. But I don't just want to cover the here and now in fintech, I want to cover the various forces which will be at work for the next few years for us all. The winds and waves in which, if your fintech coracle hasn't overturned, you'll have to be paddling for the foreseeable future. Furthermore, I did think about ignoring it all, as by now we must be all fed up of it, but how can we ignore the elephant in the room? In the end I decided to cover it, so that we will have had an LFP on it and future episodes can be more at the detailed level without always bobbing up to the same contextual issues. As we're so fed up with the whole thing by now, I'm not going to cover the stuff that's been flogged to death in the media. You know, the overzealous police finding people left, right and centre and that kind of chance. Instead, I will cover four super big picture angles today. Health slash society, government, the economy and liberty. For those who listen long enough, I shall also make an exclusive listeners only giveaway during the show. Before we dive into the context of these four different aspects, I'd like to try and present an overall model which I hope we can all buy into. I've been far too overactive on LinkedIn in my locked down days, and so have seen a lot of what passes for debate and discussion these days. Naturally, folks come from different angles, some fearful of death, and at the opposite end of the spectrum, some fearful that it is a new world order takeover. Others come at it from the perspective of data, others from short-term perspectives, others from long-term perspectives. And LinkedIn being a form of social media, there is much aggression, anger and finger-pointing by a vocal minority who assume the position of being uniquely virtuous and right and will damn to hell anyone who dares disagree with them. The woke, sanctimonious phenomenon has rolled well beyond controlling speech and thought to controlling action now. There's probably a snitch hotline to the police set up near you where you can report your neighbour for taking two jogs a day. As an example of the madness that passes for public debate, on the first weekend I posted a Peter Hitchens Sunday Mail article on LinkedIn. For those who may not know, Peter Hitchens is a mainstream journalist of some 47 years standing, and the Sunday Mail, which in passing has a different editor from the Daily Mail, is the UK's largest selling Sunday newspaper. So you might think, as did I, that posting such mainstream content on a business forum was hardly a revolutionary act. Little did I know. Hitchens has been almost the sole mainstream media dissenter slash questioner throughout in this country. Indeed, 
that is his brand. His last of many books deconstructed some World War II myths. I added to the post of his questioning the government response, quotes, think for yourself, you decide. The post became a huge flame war, went more viral than any post I'd ever done on LinkedIn at the time, and I was accused of everything from being immoral, unethical and unintelligent, and told many times that I should never have dared to post it. Of course, long-term listeners will know that I am immoral, unethical and unintelligent, so these folks were spot on, but boy, there's no need to be rude about my weaknesses. Of course, eventually, someone decided I was a Nazi, although I was pleased to see that someone, in turn, replied to my defence that I think the poster was making quite the opposite point. A post which said something along the lines of we're making lists of people like you and will come for you when all this is over got an amazing 33 likes. Nice people. I wonder what their future employers will think of their comments on LinkedIn. Anyway, the overall phenomenon of social media in the 21st century is summed up by a chum who said he'd given up on Twitter as it is so toxic. Indeed, social media is as I have found. However, Yoda knew all this a long time ago. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. In this episode, I want to avoid all that nastiness and nonsense and want to respect the fact that many of you will be coming from many different positions. I want to present a model which can cover all of our positions, thoughts, predilections in one. Being human, we all have our own biases, our own preferences, our own feelings. This is the old-fashioned real diversity thing, as opposed to the woke obsession with melanin levels. Let's imagine four bars on a bar chart, adding up to 100%, and now catch our concerns to each one. We'd each end up with our own chart of our relative weightings of four factors in this simple model. I assume that all of us, to some degree or other, will care about each of these factors. The first bar of society, or more narrowly in this case, health, and especially the COVID-19 virus. I'm sure none of us would want to catch it, and I'm sure we all agree it's a health concern. The second bar is the government response. How much of a concern is that for you? It's obviously multifactorial, but let's keep things simple and just give it an overall score on one bar. The third factor is the impact on the economy. And the fourth factor is the loss of personal liberty. Billions of people are under near house arrest. So if you fill in those, you'll come up with four percentages. And four non-zero percentages, as I say, we don't want to get ill, we don't all think our government has got it entirely right. When did we ever? We are worried about the economy and we don't relish our loss of liberty and inability to go and visit our friends and loved ones. If you like, you can switch these bar charts into four debt Venn diagram circles where the size of the circle substitutes for the percentage. And I assume that most of us would be in the overlap section of these four circles, even if all of our circles differed in size and relative importance. So with that having been said, I'll do my best not to disclose my circles slash bar sizes until the end. My views don't matter, but I will try the impossible and lay out a framework for the big picture for the economy, for business, and hence for fintech for years to come, under these areas of society slash health, government slash governance, the economy, and liberty. Let's start with society. I don't think there's any point diving into the coronavirus health issue now. As I say, it's a risk for us all. And from the data we've seen, the risk is rather lower than people were fearing a month ago. One factor that's rarely mentioned in the UK is that hospitals have turfed out all of the urgent operations. Someone in my family is awaiting an urgent heart operation, which has now been cancelled. I spoke to somebody on LinkedIn whose nephew had liver cancer in New York 
and again his operation had been cancelled. The mainstream media does not focus on deaths that are being caused by these factors. I have nothing to add to health that you wouldn't have been reading about already, so let's move on to the societal stuff. The mainstream media. When history books are written, certainly for the UK in the future, the role of the mainstream media will feature highly in the detailed mechanisms. We'll pick up bigger picture concerns in the section 2 on government and governments. The UK was implementing what we would now be calling a Swedish strategy, but once they conceded to daily press briefings, I knew it would be a disaster. The so-called lobby system, this strange UK system of special briefings for certain media outlets, had been under pressure from the government for some time. Indeed, direct broadcast to the public by the Prime Minister had caused the usual hissy fits, and off the top of my head, wasn't the Prime Minister's broadcast on leaving the EU, or something completely non-trivial, ignored by the BBC? Anyway, these are super tactical matters, but the lobby, having been at war with the government from before the virus became a thing, and also many, or most perhaps, of the London media never liking Boris in the first place, and this was before he actually took us out of their beloved Europe, well, once again, the media, by and large propagandists around the world these days, rather than journalists, had scores to settle and had it in for him. So, lo and behold, with a defeated and naval contemplating official opposition in Parliament proving totally ineffective, the mainstream media lobby became the de facto political opposition. The daily coconut shire became a gotcha contest between the odious, self-important so-called media, experts on everything in their own delusions, and the coconut at the front, the Prime Minister and some chief medical officers. Prime Minister, don't you care that people are dying? Etc, etc, etc. Away from the lobby, breakfast entertainer Piers Morgan created hysteria more effectively than any leading evangelist American preacher. The arrogant shit even tweeted at one point, if anybody wanted to change the government's policy on anything, let him know and he'd make it happen. So, out of the window went the Swedish approach, an approach in passing, which has been the approach for the past 100,000 years in every society ever, under every health peril, and in comes the Hollywoodized lockdown. Whilst many people think that the government has done roughly right thing, give or take, I haven't seen anyone supporting the media whatsoever as doing anywhere near the right thing. Indeed, in a recent poll, link in the show notes, whilst confidence in the government has increased, confidence in the media in the UK has collapsed by 21%, the worst of the four countries surveyed. One of the problems with this media-driven hysteria, which is apparently led to the government being wrong-footed in terms of the response of compliance and obedience, was that Project Fear 44, or whatever iteration one now, was super effective. If you're medieval enough to like to watch people pelted in stockades, check out Peter Hitchens' Twitter stream. Goodness knows how or why he puts up with all that abuse. I checked it out briefly and saw an interesting point he made. The UK government now realises that it's let the genie out of the lamp and can't put it back in again or it's opened Pandora's box and can't put the lid back on. So now we see, when the government is hoping to slowly change direction, hysterical headlines that we teachers refuse to go back to work, we're not going to die for teaching children. We live in an age of hysteria. Forget stiff British upper lips, they quiver all the time. Brendan O'Neill of the often impressively thoughtful, yet still digestible spiked, Quillette itself can be too long to be digestible, wrote in the middle of 2019 about the age of hysteria. Spiked again wrote in March this year about an age of apocalypticism. It's all rather extreme, isn't it? It is a resurgence of emotionalism, driven of course by fear, 
that ends up with reason being overturned. And in overturning reason, we undo the entire centuries of Enlightenment project and we're back to medievalism. This kind of medievalism that we've also seen in universities' humanities departments, which have reverted to the medieval scholasticism which preceded them. Your humanities essays must align with holy doctrine back in the day and now with the Church of the Woke rather than the Church of England. Hysteria creates tribalism and division in the people. Look at the politics in the US, more polarised than ever. Look at Brexit, look at climate hysteria, look at hysterical fear that a few people sunbathing on a beach or in a park, and let's not forget many people live in tiny cramped conditions, will kill everyone else off. I can't see this hysteria, apocalypticism, tribalism going anytime soon. Clickbait has long turned into hate bait and now fear bait. Zooming down to the level of fintechs, this make, sure makes staff management tougher than ever before as it only exacerbates the mental health epidemic we've been seeing for quite some time. Let's move on to the second aspect of governance and government. Brexit, as you may have heard, was about taking back control. But who took back control? And how much control did they take back? Let's expand the control thing to the widest level possible. The whole Brexit narrative was focused on the EU and UK, but plenty of control has long since passed to global organisations such as the United Nations, immigration and climate being prime examples. And amazingly enough, we saw calls recently from former Prime Ministers Blair and Brown, both separately calling for global government. What possibly could be wrong with that? In the 1960s, Anthony Sampson was famous for writing his book An Anatomy of Britain, which covered where power really lay in the UK. He continued to update that for the rest of his life until near his death. We really need a 21st century version of an Anthony Sampson to do an anatomy of the world. Where does power really lie? What are the roles of astronomically wealthy global barons such as Soros, funder of anarchy everywhere via chains of companies, never directly of course, all over the show? For example, off the top of my head and as far as I know, migrant caravans to the US, Gina Miller cases in the UK, open borders, and during this crisis pushing releasing prisoners earlier from prison. Another global baron who has had a good war if you only consume the mainstream media, but a terrible one if you look further, has been Bill Gates. The man who ran Event 201 and presented to the World Economic Forum in 2019 on, guess what, a coronavirus pandemic. Funny that. And he also coincidentally patented a coronavirus vaccine last year. He all but owns the WHO, the CDC, and apparently funded, again through long chains, the appallingly incompetent Ferguson at Imperial College London, whose hysterical forecasts have been wrong for a long, long time, and whose models have never been peer group reviewed. Now, to some, the influence of these global barons is obvious, and part of what they would frame as a new world order takeover. If they did that, then others immediately shout, conspiracy theory, a phrase, of course, invented by the CIA, to be able to diss any narrative other than the government's. However, let's just add a touch of fact to both sides about this global aspect of governance. A must-read, which astounded me for sure, was Robert Kennedy Jr., the nephew of the former president's article, a link in the show notes, covering Gates' vaccination catastrophes in Africa, India and Asia. I'll read from this as it's so important to all of us. The mainstream media loves pushing Gates, loves pushing vaccines, and many people I know think that any criticism of vaccines is insanity. I quote, Promising his share of $450 million, of $1.2 billion to eradicate polio, Gates took control of India's National Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, which mandated up to 50 doses of polio vaccines, 
through overlapping immunisation programmes to children before the age of five. Indian doctors blame the Gates campaign for a devastating non-polio acute flaccid paralysis NPAFP, epidemic that paralysed 490,000 children beyond expected rates between 2000 and 2017. In 2017, the Indian government dialed back Gates' vaccine regime and asked Gates and his vaccine policies to leave India. NPAFP rates dropped precipitously. In 2014, the Gates Foundation funded tests of experimental HPV vaccines developed by GlaxoSmithKline and Merck on 23,000 young girls in remote Indian provinces. Approximately 1,200 suffered severe side effects, including autoimmune and fertility disorders. Seven died. Indian government investigations charged that Gates-funded researchers committed pervasive ethical violations, pressuring vulnerable village girls into the trial, bullying parents, forging consent forms, and refusing medical care to the injured girls. The case is now in the country's Supreme Court. In 2010, the Gates Foundation funded a phase three trial of GSK's experimental malaria vaccine, killing 151 African infants and causing serious adverse effects, including paralysis, seizure, and febrile convulsions in 1,048 of the 5,949 children. During Gates' 2002 Men AfriVac campaign in Sub-Saharan Africa, Gates operatives forcibly vaccinated thousands of African children against meningitis. Approximately 50 of the 500 children vaccinated developed paralysis. South African newspapers complained, we are the guinea pigs for the drug makers. Nelson Mandela's former senior economist, Professor Patrick Bond, describes Gates' philanthropic practices as ruthless and immoral. In 2010, Gates committed $10 billion to the World Health Organization, saying, we must make this the decade of vaccines. A month later, Gates said in a TED talk that new vaccines, quotes, could reduce population, unquotes. In 2014, Kenya's Catholic Doctors Association accused the World Health Organization of chemically sterilizing millions of unwilling Kenyan women with a, quotes, tetanus vaccine campaign. Independent labs found a sterility formula in every vaccine tested. After denying the charges, WHO finally admitted it had been developing the sterility vaccines for over a decade. Similar accusations came from Tanzania, Nicaragua, Mexico and the Philippines. A 2017 study showed the WHO's popular DTP vaccine is killing more African children than the diseases it prevents. DTP vaccinated girls suffered 10 times the death rate of children who had not yet received the vaccine. You'll have to read it for yourself. I can't go on. It was so distressing. I was so absolutely shocked. Talking to a significant chum of mine recently, he said, oh, I thought vaccines were really good and saved billions in the world. I sent him the article and he was as gobsmacked as I am. Anyway, if one thing comes out of this podcast, maybe you'll check out Robert Kennedy Jr.'s article, link in the show notes, and maybe you'll have a rather different perspective about how vaccinations are going to save all of us around the world. Moving on, back to control and governance. Plenty of control remains with global organisations. Massive influence is owned by global barons. Those people who favour theories that we loosely call New World Order join the dots, see how common the responses are, and how politically and economically some parties are going to benefit. Most notably big companies, of course, to the detriment of small companies. In the US, Representative Massey dared to stand up and say that Congress should vote on the biggest transfer of wealth ever from poor to the rich. On his figures, the coronavirus bill will cost every American household $60,000, but every American household will only receive a few thousand dollars back. The rest going, as always, to a few players. 
So at one level, those who point to global barons, global organisations and gigantic pork barrelling that makes 2008 look like a dress rehearsal only are not wrong. This Massey knows himself, as, as he reported on the Ron Paul Liberty Report, having defied orders to call for a vote which never happened, he now finds various super PACs massively funding candidates to defeat him in his 2020 primary. Sticking with power lying with the ultra-wealthy, he pointed to various hedge funds who had been pissed off by his actions. And we're talking here, by the way, about a Republican senator in America. From a different perspective, the New World Order believers can get out speculating on what we might call the global organogram and putting the Bilderberg group or the Illuminati or whoever at the top without much convincing proof. Although, having said that, another document that's worth checking out if you're stuck at home for too long is the Rockefellers Foundation report in May 2010 called Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development. Sounds very innocuous, doesn't it? Until you find that the first scenario, entitled Lockstep, describes a world of total government control and authoritarian leadership, envisaging a future where, and this is 10 years ago, a pandemic would allow national leaders to flex their authority and impose airtight rules and restrictions that would remain after the pandemic faded. Golly gosh, again, that one's available online. I'm not making this stuff up. However, in general, if all we ever do is stick to a top-down emphasis on what Soros is doing or what Gates is doing or what the people behind them allegedly are doing or Paris Accords or Obama's TPP and TIPPP, we can actually miss what we might call system dynamics. In the end, there's no real difference between the top-down and the bottom-up perspective. They're both simplifications because what actually happens in the world is that 7 billion people wake up in the morning and act as they do and play various roles on this stage of life. Even if we didn't have super wealthy, super influential players, we still have this hugely complex system of 7 billion people. I mean, one person, as we all know, one person can be complex enough, out of which would arise emergent behaviour on its own. One example of this is the mainstream media. You can, if you like, take a model, and this is generally preference that seems, as far as I can see, to dictate what people think, and say the mainstream media is clearly controlled above. It says the same thing, it's the same strategy around the world. They all do the same stuff. Or you can take a bottom-up view and say that the media does whatever it takes to make a profit. And fear equals clicks, and clicks equals dollars. In a sense, it doesn't matter. Although there's always the nagging problem of things like the BBC announcing the collapse of World Trade Centre Building 7 before it happened on 9-11, and the appalling agenda, wherever it comes from, that the BBC has been following for years. Anyway, if that's the globalism, globalist stuff going on all above our heads and above our pay grades, even if these days it's affecting us all, let's come back onto these shores and discuss who's taken back control in the UK. We've mentioned the mainstream media. They first became the de facto opposition, then the de facto government. One of the weaknesses of all governments these days, and this one more than most perhaps, is total fear of bad press. Apart from Brexit, the government follows the mainstream media on most things. It has started dressing this up as following popular opinion. But that's been proven so suggestible it's actually following the mainstream media. Actually what's happened, and this is a line from a conservative website, when you introduce a Napoleonic system of government into Cabinet and Napoleon is taken ill, it's no surprise that nothing gets done. So we're rather missing leadership at the moment. Thank goodness Boris survived. He's the only one who dares take decisions, although he'll need all his strength back to face the berating of the media if he dares to change direction. And you can imagine the critical press. Whatever he does, whatever he doesn't do, the next day it'll be Boris kills people. The second element about who's really taken back control has been the permanent state or as Sir Paul Tucker called it in LFP 113 about his book of the same title, Unelected Power. Before all this virus chaos started, the focus was on, not for the first and not the last time, reforming the delivery mechanism. 
Many Prime Ministers have tried, all have failed. In this crisis, despite all the deifying of Public Health England, the policy part of the NHS, and the NHS, the delivery part of the, the NHS, they have both massively let down not just the public, but have literally killed doctors and nurses by their incompetence. Some three years ago, as reported by the Sunday Telegraph, Public Health England ran a war game about whether it could cope with a pandemic, which had been forecast as being inevitable for about a decade or so. It found it couldn't. It did nothing. As a result of which, three years later, we end up being locked up at home to, quotes, save the NHS. As Charles Moore, former editor of the Daily Telegraph, Riley observed, originally the NHS was established to save the people, not vice versa. The NHS had minimal protective equipment, its masks were not to the WHO standard, its Stalinist centralisation meant our testing was light years behind, say, Germany, its regulation was appalling, there was a huge innovative effort at the beginning by the likes of Dyson and Formula One to quickly design deliverable ventilators, which they did with some, within something amazing like 48 hours. But a month later, they're still sitting in regulators' inboxes awaiting approval. Ditto testing. I was totally shocked, as many people were this morning, to read that a firm, a British firm, that surprised Germany with testing kits and could supply a million testing kits, and testing is a huge problem for the UK, has not received a re reply from the regulator yet. Indeed, they've been told that the regulator is too busy to speak to them. Need I go on? As to the total bullshit that the NHS is, is the end of the world, does anyone believe that crap? Well, actually, I say that, but I remember <laughs> before this madness started having lunch with a buddy uh, who did believe it. So anyway, uh, in terms of objective data, however, the last time I saw a chart of national healthcare systems, the UK was 28th out of 30. Not quite a position of envy, I might argue. For the avoidance of doubt, I'm of course not blaming the front line staff, but the appalling organisation. We've got lions led by donkeys once again. And no, I haven't forgotten about fintech. For all the public praise of regulators, I hear plenty of private moans. As I've said before, much of fintech has become yet another pas de deux with regulators. The focus of many fintechs for far too long is keeping the regulator happy, and then that, of course, always squeezes out keeping the consumer happy, keeping the client happy. It's one massive reason why innovation has plummeted over the past six years this podcast has been running. After the administrators, another area in which has taken back control has been experts. God save us from the experts world. How come every time one hears it, it is about something that goes wildly wrong? Boris was bounced into this by Ferguson, the world's worst forecaster. Funny enough, a retired vet was telling me before this kicked off about some guy called Ferguson I'd never heard of whose catastrophically bad forecasts made a complete disaster. Over six million animals were unnecessarily slaughtered and burned on his advice model. Which brings us to another word, scientists. The government hides behind slogans like, we trust the science. It's supposed to be reassuring, of course, that, you know, at least you haven't got some politician winging it. But what science? None of these charlatans would pass Popper's criterion for science, some falsifiable predictions, or rather they would fail it. Nor would they even pass the lower hurdle of peer group review. Ferguson's model is some 15-year-old compiled code no one can check, and no one did check. Finally, how can you even have science or modelling about a phenomenon that's never happened before? About a phenomenon, furthermore, where the data is minimal. Something less than 0.1% of the UK has even been tested. So all this daily data we see from the government saying new cases is complete bollocks. They haven't got a clue. As to deaths, as I memorably heard it described, it's a bit like people dying with their socks on, their death being ascribed to socks. Or more precisely, dying with the virus and dying of the virus and not distinguished. I guess the final point about control is did we, 
the people take back control, ha, hardly. Wrapping up on governance. Governance is subtle. It's the possibility, it's the potential to do something. We live, as Hailsham said quite some time ago, not in a democracy, but in an elective dictatorship. As an example, the dictatorial powers. The Prime Minister could come out tomorrow, he could put his hands up, and in a minute or minute and a half say, look guys, let me level with you. We're all spooked by some apocalyptic forecasts which turned out to be wildly wrong. It doesn't look like this is the new Black Death after all. Perhaps it's akin to a bad flu season, or perhaps possibly worse than a bad flu season. We're still not sure. No one is. But we've never locked everyone in their houses before, never destroyed their health. A million urgent operations have been abandoned in the meantime, leading to deaths. Locking people at home is causing mental health problems, is causing, causing domestic violence, is causing suicide. We've never destroyed their wealth and the country's future, so we're not going to now. We're going to give you back all of your freedoms immediately, although we highly, highly recommend that especially the old and ill people be very, very careful. It's a virus that seems to affect you most. He could say that. It wouldn't take long. Or we could say the opposite. We can't be too careful, so we're locking you up for the rest of the year. And that would take a minute as well. And suddenly that would be it. But don't hold your breath. Politicians are rarely leaders enough to do the former. We'd need a church or to stand up and change direction that drastically to put their hand up and say, mea culpa. Nor are they honest enough to do the latter, tell us they're going to lock us up for months. They'll just keep kicking the can slowly down the road. So, having covered some aspects of society and some aspects of governance and government, let's turn to the economy. Macroeconomically, we all know it's a disaster. According to a recent report, it'll lead to the worst collapse for over 300 years, when it was a little chilly, to put it mildly, in 1709. The Chancellor announces measures which, as usual, end up delivering great PR and fuck all use to those most suffering. One scheme had a 2% take-up rate. The spirit of the Labour Party must have infected the government. As we already saw, it has not just a magic money tree, but a magic money forest. And it continues. HS2, all 100 billion is going ahead. What could possibly have derailed that? The government spends, 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 borrows, borrows, borrows. What can go wrong? As someone put it, I didn't know why they bother taxing us, as they can clearly just print or borrow the money, as much money as they like. Microeconomically, it's a disaster for many small businesses, especially tiny businesses below our radar of raising large sums of capital in central London, which, if you're lucky, will last for some time. As to fintechs, it's a function of size, momentum and fortune. Those biggies who have a recent round on their belt can continue working from home for some time and exit this madness period in relatively good shape. At the other end, there will be a huge cull. Good luck raising money if you haven't already got traction big time and if you need it. I've tried not to intrude on my chum's private grief in fintech, but two comments from early in this phrase stuck in my mind. The first, in terms of me saying how's it going, was the answer, quotes, not ideal. This was someone from someone who's very English. So translated from English, it means completely shit. Another one, in terms of what are you guys doing at the moment, the answer came rearranging the deck chairs i.e. the Titanic has hit the iceberg and is hurled below the water. Anyway, before we wrap up the show and talk about liberty, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. I hope you and your family are healthy and wealthy and remain so, and I hope you all manage to get your freedom back. I'd also like to thank the many LinkedIn folks who have kindly DM'd me to thank me for my posts and for saying what they felt they, due to their positions, could not say. One kind person said that reading my posts was more informative than the BBC or Sky. I'd like to be feeling positive about that, but I suspect it's quite a low hurdle. There are many nasty trolls out there, and these folks must really be suffering to lash out so unpleasantly to people they've never met. 
But there are also countless kind people in the world who for one reason or another keep their heads down. I'd also like to thank my brand partner for the podcast, who I'm glad to say have good momentum, a smart pension who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. Now, in terms of the giveaway, as you may recall, I've written the book, The Real Politic of the Enlisted Company Board. Not one of you has got an excuse not to rush out to Amazon and buy it now and give you something interesting to read in your lockdown period. I've spent two and a half years looking at it. I've spoken to, by now actually, better part of 100 people. In the book I mentioned 80, but it's better part of 100 about their boards. What I was going to be doing for the last month, if I'd managed to go skiing and then come back and get on with things, was setting up some board consulting, helping people with their boards. Boards are more important than ever right now. Your board needs to be not just an engine of growth, but a mechanism of survival and support for you. So, in terms of my small contribution towards this crisis, the first three people who listen to this podcast, who email me at mike at mikeballiman.com, I'm very happy to give you a free board consultation over Skype or over Zoom and help you with whatever challenges you've got with your board for free. So, how do we wrap up? Right now, there's nothing more important to any sector of the economy than the virus, or rather the response to the virus. The debts will be paid by our grandchildren. Microeconomically, the Chancellor keeps banging on about businesses bouncing back. Well, all I can say is that bust businesses don't bounce, Rishi. Big co's, of course, will be bailed out by us all. I mentioned the four-circle model up front. Society slash health, government, the economy, and liberty. I personally am not too concerned about the virus. If my parents get it, given their age and conditions, it will be very likely to be very bad news indeed. I'd definitely rather not get it myself, but all the evidence is that the original hysterical models, garbage in, garbage out, or zero information in, garbage out, were badly wrong. It's a nasty thing, but it's not the Black Death by any means. It's not going to wipe out one third of Europe. Famous last words. Government, well, it's obviously an unprecedented tyranny right now. No matter how evil or despotic a regime, no culture in history has ever locked up its population for any reason, let alone just an infectious virus. The Spanish flu killed more than died in the whole of World War I, more died in the whole of World War I than in World War II. But did you know that US President Wilson never mentioned it once in 1918-1920? I despise the likes of Gove and Hancock who appear on our televisions and treat us like naughty schoolchildren, threatening us with more punishment, as someone said they must have been bullied at school, those guys. As to the globalists, well, with time on my hands, I found that the 21st century intelligence adage is true. And actually, I was contacted online by an intelligence person to say this as well. You can find out most everything you would want to know if you join the dots between information already in the public domain. These prime examples being Kennedy's article on Gates and the Rockefeller paper from 2010. You can actually download it yourself. You can read about a scenario which, amazingly enough, rather fits where we are at the moment. So... It's far more easy for me to understand people who talk about New World Order now than it was a few weeks ago. Not more cheerful, but more easy. The economy is a catastrophe, and it's hard to be too concerned about that. The loss of small businesses that people have worked so hard for is immensely saddening, as is the fate of the poor and the young who are suffering far more than the cushy London chatterati bubble. But perhaps more than all of these things, which are all deeply concerning, is the loss of liberty. Liberty is also tied up with prosperity as well as freedom. As I've touched on, the company has developed for 500 years. In 1600, North America still belonged to its original inhabitants, and Britain was a nothing. Britain grew to world domination in large part as liberty led to great advances in business, philosophy, science and technology. 
The US took over economically in late 19th century, which engine powered it into the 20th century, and with a little judicious bankrupting of the British after World War II, saw it ruling the roost. Its economic dominance was again based in large part on personal liberty. Now we've thrown all that away. Not only that, but people have lost their personal liberty. The chance just to live life, if you will, the chance to be with your friends, family, get out there in the world. Every day we're ticking off one day of our life. One nice way of wrapping this up is a lady responded on one of my LinkedIn threads with a very simple post which stuck in my mind. She said, everyone is essential. So let's end on that note. Everyone is essential. And let's hope our feudal overlords return our liberty to us sooner rather than later. Or if they don't, that once again the people will have to take it back. It won't be the first time, and it probably won't be the last. Finally, especially for those of you stressed out right now, and the alcohol consumption has rather gone up at London Fintech Podcast Towers over the past few weeks, I'd recommend any of Eckhart Tolle's T-O-L-L-E, if you don't know who he is, YouTube's recently. He's been putting out great content and the ability, which can be improved as a skill, to tune out of the realm of thoughts and concerns and concepts, worries about the virus, worries about the government, worries about the lockdown, into a simple sense of being here and now in this world. This amazing thing, if you stop and look around, there's a tree. I mean, what is a tree? I know you can give me words, but no, but what is it? It's a miracle. A pencil in my hand. It's an amazing world. We can drop out of conceptuality into beingness. If you want to call it being in the Tao or the ground of being or the kingdom of God within, whatever label you want, it doesn't really matter. Eckhart has done some great YouTubes to help you all along with that. It's very invaluable to be able to existentially breathe out. So here we are. This was not a podcast um, even a month ago could ever imagine doing or ever imagine the circumstances. Still, we are where we are. Stay well, stay healthy, regain your wealth, and let's all sail towards freedom. So, from next episode onwards, we'll be back to the stories of continuing to build or rebuilding in fintech. Never say die, my friends. Live long and prosper. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the
like the mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.